Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. In today's episode, we continue our series on American identities by exploring what may seem like an unlikely pairing of topics, African-American literature and the FBI. As Associate Professor William J. Maxwell will explain, under FBI Director John Hoover, for more than 50 years, Black authors and FBI agents had a bizarrely intimate relationship involving surveillance, imitation, and confrontation. Maxwell discovered the details of all this by delving into the FBI files of a who's who of historic Black authors, including James Baldwin and Richard Wright. His forthcoming book is titled FBI's, How J. Edgar Hoover's Ghost Readers Framed African-American Literature. To get started, I asked Maxwell to explain the idea of ghost reading. Ghost reading is, is a pun on ghost writing. It's a mode of reading that FBI agents are performing, that black writers know is being performed, but which can't be seen, a little like ghost writing. So there's the outline of what ghost reading is. But why was it happening in the first place? It begins with the desire to make certain that there isn't some fatal marriage between American radicalism and African-American protest. This is what Hoover was brought into the Bureau in 1919 or so to to attack and, and deny. Um, so initially, we have ghost readers, namely FBI agents, asked to look through radical publications for evidence of possible crimes, uh, ideological and otherwise. Under Hoover's insistence, FBI agents had college degrees. Some had actually studied English literature. So even as they looked for evidence of criminality, the educational background of these ghost readers likely influenced how they approached African-American texts. They begin to be oddly seduced by the black letters, the black literature that they're writing. Um, and they begin to approach uh, these texts with a certain kind of appreciation and to write up responses that take on a literary critical coloration. Um, and some of the work that's produced in response to black writing is quite insightful. It could deserve an A in a college literature course. For a dramatic example, let's turn to what Maxwell calls the FBI's favorite play, a Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry. The play debuted in 1959, and today it's known as a civil rights standard that's often studied and performed in schools. But for the FBI, it was something quite different. The FBI, when it just catches word that this play is, is coming down the pike and coming to Broadway, um, all these alarms go off, and they're really worried about its possible communist content. They have been following the author of this play, Lorraine Hansberry, for several years prior to this, uh, to such an extent that they they know when she's changing her style of clothing and haircuts. They have people on the streets watching her at various moments. So they're really worried about this play. Because of this worry, of course agents tracked the play as it moved towards Broadway. Uh, when it gets to Philadelphia, the famous Walnut Theater, they actually send a now anonymous FBI agent, his name has been redacted from Hansberry's file, um, who goes in, quickly you know, dispenses with the worries about communism, says there's nothing like that in this play, but then writes up a really good five-page paper <laughs> about Raisin and Sun. The detailed analysis included aspects of Raisin and the Sun that literary scholars didn't pick up on for years. In other words, the FBI chose the right guy for the job. 
this is an instance in which you have an FBI ghost reader whose you know initial business is to certify that the play or the act or the book is not treasonous, who then falls into the pleasure of the text, who then winds up acting the way that academic literary critics often do, in which there's an analytical element, but there's an emotional connection. So this was in 1959. In the coming years of the civil rights movement, Hoover's tactics went from passive surveillance to active counterintelligence. And some of the tactics you might find surprising. This involved, bizarrely enough, attempts to imitate black arts writing. And you have agents attempting to imitate the cadences, the styles of black arts poems. Uh, the FBI actually authored an entire pseudo-newspaper and ascribed it to the student uh, union at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale and attempted to embarrass and misdirect this form of radicalism through its own writing. Um, this is a specifically literary mode of counterintelligence. It's a right-wing minstrelsy. Maxwell calls this type of activity counter-literature. In addition to writers, the FBI targeted specific civil rights activists. And this brings us to the single most notorious known case of counter-literature. Here's the story. William C. Sullivan, who's one of Hoover's most trusted underlings, who runs domestic intelligence, a whole division of the FBI, is asked by Hoover, who's particularly upset by the fact that Martin Luther King has just won the Nobel Peace Prize, to do everything he can to embarrass King. Sullivan's response seemed simple enough. He wrote King an anonymous letter. A very strange anonymous letter. You have Sullivan write this letter in the person or in the voice of uh, a very disaffected member of the civil rights movement, a black foot soldier of the civil rights movement that says, King, we know that you are in fact a corrupt beast. You have 34 days to take the right step. As if the content of that letter wasn't menacing enough, Sullivan attached taped audio evidence of King's extramarital affairs, which the FBI had gathered by bugging his hotel rooms. But for Maxwell, the fact that this letter is a blatant attempt to blackmail a Nobel Peace Prize winner isn't the most notable thing about it. What's fascinating to me, fascinating and grotesque about this letter, is the way in which it's written in a black voice. For me, it also encapsulates this odd fascination of the FBI, which goes from 1919 all the way up to Hoover's death in 1972 with black writing. And its conviction that black writing is intimately involved in black political life, that the two can't be divorced from each other. To read one is to read the other. And I think the letter uh, sort of nicely captures that. But even with this fascination, why did Sullivan choose to write this letter with a fake black voice? Clearly, it was an attempt to subvert King's power and influence over his fellow African-Americans. But there was more going on. I think it's also because Sullivan, on some level, wants to be black. <laughs> I mean, he saw himself as this odd man out in the FBI, as disgusted as he was with King. And disgusting in relationship to that, he was this Irish Catholic Democrat. Um, and as a young man, in particular, was taught by his Catholic uh, father to f loathe and fear the Ku Klux Klan. He saw himself, in certain ways, in the position of the racial other within the organization. So as we've been hearing throughout this series on American identities, the issue wasn't strictly black and white. And of course, this whole tactic of counter-literature was in itself not a one-way street. Black writers knew that they were being monitored and imitated by the FBI. And unsurprisingly, their responses, at least in some cases, had a literary flair. 
you have authors like Wright and Baldwin either threatening or writing up explicit countershots at the FBI. You have a sort of counter-FBI literature that's surprisingly deep and persistent in the black literary tradition. This sort of back and forth goes on throughout the entire period we've been discussing. All the way back in 1919, the FBI wrote up a report with the bulky title, Radicalism and Sedition Among the Negroes as Reflected in Their Publications. News outlets like the New York Times wrote about this document, and of course, so did the black publications that were being accused. One of the things that the, these early Harlem Renaissance journals notice ironically is how much interest there is on the part of the government in this, how, how seriously this is being taken. That's the sort of upside of potential censorship. Someone is taking you deeply seriously. And so actually this, this reading of the FBI is discovered first around Thanksgiving time. So many of the earliest Harlem Renaissance journals produce these sort of um, pseudo-Thanksgiving tributes to the FBI. Give thanks. Finally, the white man is taking us seriously. Skipping ahead a few decades, Richard Wright wrote explicitly about the FBI. In fact, it's one of his responses that gave Maxwell his book title, FBI's. This is three stanzas of a poem that Richard Wright wrote called The FBI Blues. And if it doesn't sound like a blues, that's okay because Richard Wright was famously not very good at the blues. That old FBI tied a bell to my bedstall. Each time I love my baby, government knows it all. <laughs> woke up this morning, FBI under my bed. Said I woke up this morning, FBI under my bed. Told me all I dreamed last night, every word I said. Everywhere I look, Lord, I see FBI's. Said every place I look, Lord, I find FBI's. I'm getting sick and tired of government spies. So across 50 years, the complex intersection of racial and political American identities produced surprisingly literary results. The relationship between the FBI and African-American letters was often one of threat and subversion, but it was still very much a relationship. But one thing that this, I think the project makes very clear, the book makes very clear, is that the most terrifying loathing of blackness can coexist with absolute fascination, love, interest, and appreciation, right? And I, I, I'm not the only person to have discovered this. It's just fascinating and disturbing to find it at the heart of the most storied name in American law enforcement, which is the FBI. Many thanks to William J. Maxwell for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find a link to his faculty profile on our website, thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu. As always, you can keep up with Hold That Thought on Facebook and Twitter or subscribe to our weekly podcasts via iTunes or SoundCloud. I'm your host, Claire Navarro. Thanks for listening. <laughs>